read an interesting account one time. A poor man had wanted to go on a cruise all of his life. And as a youngster, he had seen an advertisement for a luxury cruise. And ever since, he had dreamed about spending a week on a large ocean liner, enjoying fresh sea air, relaxing in a luxurious environment. He saved the money for years to get this ticket and carefully counted his pennies, often sacrificing personal needs so that he could stretch his resources a little bit further. Finally, he had enough to purchase the cruise ticket, and he went to, to the travel agent, and he looked over the cruise brochures, picked out the one that was especially attractive to him, and bought a ticket. And with the money he had saved so long, he finally got to go on his cruise. He was hardly able to believe that he was about to realize his childhood dream. Knowing he couldn't afford the kind of elegant food pictured in the brochure, the man planned to bring his own provisions for the week. Accustomed to moderation after years of frugal living, and with his entire savings going to pay for the cruise ticket, the man decided to bring along a week's supply of bread and peanut butter. That was all he could afford. The first few days of the cruise were thrilling. The man ate peanut butter sandwiches alone in his room, spent the rest of his time relaxing in the sunlight and the fresh air, delighted to be aboard the ship. By midweek, however, the man was beginning to notice that he was the only person on board who was not eating luxurious meals. And it seemed that every time he sat on the deck or rested in the lounge or stepped outside his cabin, a porter would walk by with a huge meal for someone who had ordered room service. By the fifth day of the cruise, the man couldn't take it any longer. The peanut butter sandwiches seemed stale and tasteless, and he was desperately hungry. Even the fresh air and the sunshine had lost its appeal. Finally, he stopped the porter and exclaimed, tell me how in the world I might get one of those meals. I'm dying for some decent food. I'll do anything you say to earn it. Porter said, sir, you don't have a ticket for the, don't you have a ticket for this cruise? Well, certainly, he said, but I spent everything I had on that ticket. I have nothing left to buy food. But sir, said the porter, don't you realize that meals are included with your passage? You can eat as much as you want. Lots of Christians live like that man. Not realizing the unlimited provisions that are theirs in Christ, they munch on stale scraps of the world. There's no need to live like that. Everything we could ever want or need is included in the cost of admission and the Savior has already paid the price. There's a small word that summarizes all that we possess in Christ Jesus. It's the word grace. It's a great word. It's used over 150 times in the New Testament, yet like the man in the story, people don't really get its meaning. It's my belief that Satan would have it remain that way for most of us. It's, the, it's one of his most powerful weapons against the Christian. To make us think that God's grace is not enough to get us through to eternal life. That we have to add something else to it. In my opinion, that's one of his most powerful tactics. C.S. Lewis thought so as well. In his well-known and widely read book, The Screwtape Letters, Lewis wrote the following imaginary correspondence from a demon named Screwtape to his apprentice, Wormwood, who was desperately trying to keep the human he was assigned to from practicing biblical Christianity. 
Here's the imaginary letter. My dear Wormwood, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychical research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Now, I believe that in the 1940s, when Lewis comprised that fictional letter from Screwtape, he had nailed down the problem that has put the contemporary church on the edge of disaster. It's the Christianity and syndrome. The demon Screwtape hated the concept of mere Christianity with a passion and knew that to decorate it with worldly fashions, ideas, and trendy add-ons would water down the message and eventually drown out pure Christianity. Many of us don't realize it, but we've been subtly wooed and seduced into this demonic philosophy. We would argue to the death that we believe in the all-sufficiency of Christ. But do our actions adamantly deny it? Is Christ really enough to fulfill our desire for joy? Think about it truthfully. In Philippians, Paul repeatedly speaks of joy. It's one of the predominant themes of the letter. It seems that the Christians at Philippi needed this word from Paul. Ironically enough, I think most people in the church need this challenge very often. It's easy for us to lose our joy, especially, especially if we have slipped into the Christianity and syndrome. Because there's always another and. We never seem to have enough. What we need to realize is that Christ is enough. Amen? And if we don't, it will be very easy for us to fall into the hands and demands of what I call the grace killers. The grace killers. False teachers who promulgate a message that essentially says that faith in Christ is not enough to get you through. You need Christ and something else. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, if you would. Philippians chapter 3, the first three verses as we continue on in this letter. In chapter 1, let me do a brief summary. In chapter 1, Paul detailed for us that true joy could be found through the proclamation of the gospel. The theme of that chapter was the joyful promotion of the gospel that comes through the powerful preaching of Christ. In chapter 2, the concept was primarily about what that gospel produced in us. In other words, Paul wrote of the joyful product of the gospel being a Christ-like pattern of life. Now here, as we begin chapter 3, Paul is concerned with something different. He's concerned with the joyful promise of the gospel. 
And that promise is something we all need to get a good grasp on. It is the answer to the Christianity and philosophy of our age. Paul says that the joyful promise of the gospel is our powerful sufficiency in Christ. The joyful promise of the gospel is our powerful sufficiency in Christ. We possess complete sufficiency in Christ. Remember that terminology. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We don't need to add anything to what Christ has already accomplished. There are those today that would try to put us in bondage to a set of rules or to follow codes to keep in addition to what Christ has already done. They were present in the early church as well. They tried to mix keeping the Jewish law with the doctrine of Christian grace, and it didn't work. They were false teachers known as Judaizers. Paul had to warn the Philippians about them, and he warns us through this letter as well. In the three opening verses of this personal, very personal chapter, Paul says that because of our sufficiency in Christ, we can perceive and stand against the, that twisted and perverted doctrine. But before he embarks on the negative, Paul gives us something positive to bank on. He says, first of all, because of our sufficiency in Christ, we can experience spiritual comfort. Verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Finally, my brethren, Paul says. It's interesting to me that Paul uses the word finally when he still has 44 more verses to go. One writer commented that Paul is the father of all preachers who use finally, my brethren, as an indication that they have found their second wind. It's true, isn't it? Now, that may be true. He used the same wording in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, and then continued on for 46 more verses, nearly half of that letter. But while Paul may indicate that he's starting to wrap things up, more probably it may indicate that he's changing the subject. Actually, his final, finally, comes in chapter 4, verse 8. But what Paul is concerned with at this point in chapter 3 in the letter is the outward attacks of the false teachers which will inevitably destroy the Philippians' joy. So before he warns them, he encourages them. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. You want to spot someone who doesn't understand the true grace of God? Check out their joy. Check out their joy. People who are in bondage to a rigid set of rules and regulations are not usually joyful people. Paul issues this command here. He says, check your joy quotient. Rejoice in the Lord and make it your habit of life. And I think he starts out by saying we can find comfort through continually rejoicing in the Lord. 
Now let me ask you, do you rejoice in your Christianity? Or is it a burden to you? Do you understand the freedom that you have in Christ to really live? True joy is found in knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. It is serious business. That's why I've titled the series Joy in Christ. It's serious business. But there's another way to experience some spiritual comfort besides rejoicing in the Lord. We find comfort through the constant repetition of the principles of God's Word. I think that's why he goes on to say, to write the same things again is no trouble to me. It's no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. Alexander McLaren once said that the diseased craving for originality in the present day tempts us all, hearers and speakers alike, and we ever need to be reminded that the staple of Christian teaching must be old truths reiterated. That it is not time to stop proclaiming them until all men have begun to practice them. Basically, the Bible teaches the same principles over and over and over again with different applications. Our problem is not hearing it too many times. Our problem lies in not applying it enough times. Reminds me of the new preacher who was called to a small church in the country and he preached the same message three weeks in a row. After the fourth week of this, the deacons took him aside and assured him that his preaching was absolutely off the map. But didn't he have any other sermons? The pastor's reply was simple and quick. He said that when people finally start applying what I preached, I'll move on to something else. (laughs) Now that may be a good idea. Because we've grown so fat with biblical knowledge that not only don't we apply what we've heard, but we don't remember half of it. Paul says to write the same things to you is no problem. He knew that repetition was a vital part of their learning and teaching them sound doctrine was necessary for their safeguard, for their safety. It wasn't a bother to him. And Peter knew that importance as well. If you turn to 2 Peter... In chapter 1, verse 12, we read similar, similar sentiments here. First, uh, second Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Flip over to chapter 3, same, same letter. Verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And I love how he ends out the letter. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 
You see, I don't mind preaching the same biblical truths to you again and again. I don't view it as a burden, but a necessity. Because not only does it engrave sound doctrine in your minds, but it also strengthens and revitalizes my own faith. Paul says that repetition is a safeguard. And that word is used, is is from a word which really means to trip up. It is used here to refer to something that has stability and firmness, enough not to be tripped up or overthrown. So let me ask you a question. Are you spiritually comfortable in the fact that you can perceive false doctrine when you hear it or see it? Are you spiritually comfortable in that? Because that kind of comfort comes through our continual rejoicing in the Lord and our constant repetition of His truth that Christ is sufficient. Christ alone is sufficient. Our sufficiency in Christ means, however, that we must also exercise spiritual caution. That's in verse 2. Philippians 3, verse 2. Paul says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Paul issues this triple threat warning of intensity here. It's like a jackhammer pounding on the pavement. Paul repeatedly warns us to pay attention. Beware, beware, beware. Circle it. It's emphatic. It's like three blows of a gavel. Paul pronounces judgment on these false teachers who dogged his steps from one city to the next. These, by the way, are not three separate groups of people, okay? He's referring to one group in three different ways. They were known as Judaizers. And he describes three aspects of their makeup. They simply could not believe that Christ's grace was sufficient enough to save people. Basically, they taught that faith in Christ wasn't enough for true salvation And they specifically taught that circumcision was necessary for salvation, among other things. Turn back to Acts chapter 15, if you would. Acts chapter 15. Look at verses 1 and 2. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great discussion and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Skip down to verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now check this out, verse 10. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Notice what he says there. Very subtle distinction. Peter says, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. He didn't say it the other way around. He didn't say they are saved the same way we are. He says, we are saved the same way they are. By grace. With no additions. That's pretty important, isn't it? Wherever Paul went, these dissenters tried to steal his converts. The entire book of Galatians specifically addresses the problem of these legalists. However, don't think that they have died out over the years, because they haven't. There's no shortage of their descendants today. These grace killers are found in virtually every community. They don't omit faith in Christ from salvation. Rather, they add something to it. There are killers on the loose today, says one author. The problem is that you can't tell them by looking at them. They don't wear little buttons that give away their identity, nor do they carry signs warning everybody to stay away. On the contrary, a lot of them carry Bibles and appear to be clean-living, nice-looking, law-abiding citizens. Most of them spend a lot of time in churches, some in places of religious leadership. Many are so respected in the community, their neighbors would never guess that they are living next door to killers. They kill freedom, spontaneity, and creativity. They kill joy as well as productivity. They kill with their words and their pens and their looks. They kill with their attitudes far more often than with their behavior. There's hardly a church or Christian organization or Christian school or missionary group or media ministry where such a danger does not lurk. This amazing thing is that they, they get away with it day in and day out without being confronted or exposed. Strangely, the same ministries that would not tolerate heresy for 10 minutes will step aside and allow these killers all the space they need to maneuver and manipulate others in the most insidious manner imaginable. Their intolerance is tolerated. Their judgmental spirits remain unjudged. Their bullying tactics continue unchecked. And their narrow-mindedness is either explained away or it's quickly defended. The bondage that results would be criminal, he says, if it were not so subtle and wrapped in such spiritual, spiritually sounding garb. Maybe you've experienced this firsthand. Maybe you've been fortunate enough to be spared so far. Do you know how to spot these people? You need to exercise spiritual caution. Caution in assessing three things. Three simple things. Number one, we need to be cautious of their character. Paul calls them dogs for a reason. A good reason. The Jews in Paul's day considered dogs to be the most despised and miserable animals on the face of the earth because of their characteristics. Herds of dogs would prowl the city streets. We're not talking about spot your pet, right? They were without a home, without an owner, mangy, flea-bitten, and vicious. They would turn on you in a split second. 
They prowled around, feeding on the scraps of refuge and filth of the streets, growling among themselves and ferociously attacking any intruders or passers-by that seemed to threaten them. Dogs became a term of reproach among both the Greeks and the Jews. In fact, Jews used this term to refer to Gentiles. But when Paul uses the term here, he turns it on the Judaizers who prowled around Christian congregations seeking to prey on weaker believers out on the fringes. We still have them today. Cultists and legalists have the same plan of attack as these Judaizers did. They infiltrate congregations. They prey on the weak ones. Jesus used this term, dogs, also to refer to the adversaries of God's truth in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. And that's what they are, adversaries of God's truth. The truth about grace. The truth about the sufficiency, our all-sufficiency in Christ. In Revelation twenty-two fifteen, that verse proclaims that those dogs will remain outside of heaven for eternity. My friends, you need to be aware of any teaching that questions or calls into question the all-sufficiency of Christ. Because it's false. Beware of the dogs. Be cautious of their character, but also secondly, we need to be cautious of their conduct. Their conduct. Paul says he calls them evil workers. Evil workers, says Paul. That's a pretty bold designation, wouldn't you say? The term applies not that they are just evil doers, but that they actually go out of their way exerting labor and energy to thwart the true gospel of grace. They're evil workers. They are adversaries of God and his people and haters of Christ in reality. David described the character of their hatred for Christ in one of the most celebrated messianic psalms in the Psalter. In Psalm 22, in verse 16, we read these words, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Guess who did that? Yeah, it was the Romans, but who put them up to it? It was the Jews. It was the Pharisees. It was the religious leading elders of the day. But not only are they evil workers, but Paul labels them as deceitful workers. Deceitful workers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, Paul also talks about these people and describes them a different way. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Sounds like the screw tape letters. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. These are the ones that draw attention away from Christ and his accomplished redemption on the cross. And they redirect it toward forced adherence to outward rituals. Religion by rote. Pseudo-holiness without spiritual power. Which ultimately results in ruin. Spiritual shipwreck. You could call them Satan's demolition crew. 
They are spiritual house wreckers. And if you've ever been involved with any of these people, you know what havoc they can wreak with your household. They expend great amounts of energy to demolish God's temple, the church, a place of grace and peace, right? Legalism is the arch enemy of a church that is spiritually alive because if you give legalism enough rope, there will be a lynching of every freedom we have in Christ. Pastor Eugene Peterson doesn't mince words in describing these evil workers in his book, Traveling Light. He says, there are people who do not want us to be free. They don't want us to be free before God, accepted just as we are by his grace. They don't want us to be free to express our faith originally and creatively in the world. They want to control us. They want to use us for their own purposes. They themselves refuse to live arduously and openly in faith, but huddle together with a few others, us four no more, you know, and try to get a sense of approval by insisting that all look alike, all talk alike, all act alike, thus validating one another's worth. They try to enlarge their numbers only on the condition that new, new members act and talk and behave the way they do. These people infiltrate communities of faith to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, and not infrequently find ways to control, to restrict, and to reduce the lives of free Christians. Without being aware of it, we become anxious about what others will say about us, obsessively concerned about what others think we should do. We no longer live the good news, but anxiously try to memorize and recite the script that someone else has assigned to us. In such an event, we may be secure, but we will not be free. We may survive as a religious community, but we will not experience what it means to be human, he says, alive in love and faith, expansive in hope. Eugene Peterson's a great writer. See, Jesus minces no words either concerning them, charging them with, in the Gospel of Matthew, tying up heavy burdens and laying them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. That's Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. And later on in that chapter, this is what Jesus says. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom from, of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. See, Jesus was very firm with this kind of thing, and Paul is being as well. We need to be cautious of their character, cautious of their conduct, and also we need to be cautious of their creed. Their creed. Beware of the false circumcision, Paul says. They believed that circumcision was an absolute necessity for salvation. Paul calls them the false circumcision, and it was a play on words. The word literally means the mutilators. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of covenantal relationship with God. However, it, it was intended to signify a spiritual circumcision of the heart. 
These false teachers, with their emphasis on outward rituals, not only mutilated their flesh, but they mutilated the gospel by adding to it. They needed to learn that true salvation didn't lie in a physical cutting away of the body, but in a spiritual cutting away of the heart. That was always God's desire in the Old Testament. Always his desire. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves unto the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, the prophet says. You people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Later in chapter 9, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Then in Romans chapter 2, in verses 28 and 29 in the New Testament, Paul says, For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart, Paul says, receives praise from God. This is the key. Not from people. Who are you trying to please? Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This message was particularly important to the Philippian church, which was probably composed entirely of Gentiles who were uncircumcised. You know, today's Judaizers may not advocate cutting away the flesh as a means to salvation, but they impose other regulations, very similar ones. They say in order to be saved, you must stop going to movies, stop going to the theater, stop wearing makeup, stop playing cards, stop buying lottery tickets, get rid of your TV, stop going to the beach, stop going to restaurants that sell alcohol, stop wearing pants, women, no piercing, men or women. Stop listening to rock music. Stop dancing. Stop eating certain foods. Stop growing out your hair, assuming you have hair. And on the flip side, stop shaving your head bald, also assuming you have hair. Can't win. Can't have a beard. Don't smoke. No coffee. No yoga pants. King James Version only. Must speak in tongues. Blah, 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 blah. And on and on it goes. The list goes on. As Matt Chandler put it, the dogs stay focused on I do, I don't, I have, I never. Isn't that right? The fact is that many of these things may be per a personal and healthy result of an individual's salvation. But listen, mark this, they are never prerequisites. Never. And as a, mean, as a means to or a measure of our righteousness, they fall woefully short. It is only in Christ and in Him alone that we find what is sufficient for our salvation. Amen? I can't emphasize that enough. 
There's a fundamental distinction between the true and the false circumcision as Paul lays it out. We can perceive perversion of the truth because true believers exemplify spiritual confidence. Look at verse 3 in Philippians 3. For we are the true circumcision, Paul says, who worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. See, Christians who believe in the all-sufficiency of Christ have the mark of true circumcision, circumcised heart. It is a circumcision made without hands, says Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. They know that in Christ they are complete, and they share these three characteristics in verse 3. Number one, they worship by the Spirit. True believers worship by the Spirit of God and are not by man-made rituals or traditions. Let me ask you a question. Is your worship, your personal worship, is it spirit-led? Do you have to have the music in a certain style before you can say you've worshipped? Do you even have to have music at all? Sometimes I wonder if in the midst of the church's celebration and all that we perceive worship to be, that if we cleared away all the noise, would the Spirit be found alive? Or are we drowning Him out by our man-made rituals and routines? In his book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, John MacArthur makes an observation worth some serious thought. He says, worship services in many churches today are like a merry-go-round. You drop a token in the collection box, it's good for a ride. There's music and lots of motion up and down. The ride is carefully timed and seldom varies in length. Lots of good feelings are generated and this is the one ride you can be sure will never be the least bit threatening or challenging. But though you spend the whole time feeling as if you're moving forward, you get off exactly where you got on. Those are pretty harsh words. Pretty convicting words, aren't they? My friends, in all the times I've preached on worship. I hope that by now most of you have learned that worship is not just what we do here on Sunday mornings. It is not limited by geography or tradition. It ought to be an active part of your everyday life. John chapter 4. Don't forget what Jesus told the woman at the well. Verse 20, the woman said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Do you worship by the spirit in truth? Because that's, according to Paul, a mark of the true Christian. And a second characteristic is like it. He says they glory in the Lord. They glory in the Lord. Where's your satisfaction come from? 
Is it from the fact that our hope is found in Jesus Christ alone? That there is nothing that we can add? There's a story told of William Randolph Hearst, the late newspaper publisher who invested a fortune in collecting great works of art. And one day he read about some valuable pieces and decided that he had to have them. He just had to have them for his personal collection. Months and months went by. Finally, his agent returned and reported that at last, the items that he wanted for his collection were found. They were stored in his own warehouse. Hearst had purchased them many, many years before. Totally forgot about them. You know, sadly, that story is a story of many Christians who are searching, searching, searching for the satisfaction that they should already possess in Christ. The telltale mark of Christianity is that the quest for ultimate satisfaction is virtually over because all of our spiritual resources are fulfilled in Christ. Glorying in Christ is not just an attitude of mind, but an activity of life. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, some of my favorite passages of Scripture. Jeremiah says, these telling words, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, says the Lord. What is your boast today? What are you prideful of? What, what are you glorying in? Your good job? Perfect GPA? Popularity? Your knowledge? Musical talent? Paul says it is nothing. There is only one boast for the believer. To Christ. Next week, we're going to see that as we move on because Paul's going to give you a list of all his accomplishments and he's going to tell you that they meant nothing to him in comparison to knowing, fully knowing Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 says, But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's words of confidence, word of confidence here, is that the true believers worship by the Spirit, they glory in the Lord, and finally, they do not trust in human effort. Put no confidence in the flesh, it says in verse 3. Philippians 3, 3, let me read it to you out of the New Living Translation. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. If we know ourselves at all, we know that we cannot trust in ourselves, right? If we're true Christians, our creed is, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Everything a man is outside of Christ, Paul says, profits him nothing. We're sinners. 
by birth and by practice. We bring nothing with us to commend us to God. No ritual, no righteousness, no religion. We can't wear the right clothes. All of them are stained and filthy, the Bible says. We can't say the right words because they fall on deaf ears. We can't do the right things because the scripture says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it doesn't matter if you give up everything that you own or if you have had a vision or a dream or some supernatural experience or some so-called deeper knowledge of, of something spiritual. They won't get you anywhere. The only thing in the world that will warrant you an ounce of weight before God Almighty is not something you have done. It is something Christ already did. And he did it on your behalf and on mine. It was the cross. Warren Wearsby, as I wrap this up, tells of a lady arguing with her pastor about the matter of faith plus works. She says, I think that getting to heaven is like rowing a boat, she says. One oar is faith and the other is works. If you use both, you get there. If you only use one, you go around in circles. Sounds pretty good, huh? Pastor says, there's only one thing wrong with your illustration. Nobody's going to heaven in a rowboat. <laughs> We're going by one thing and one thing alone, the cross of Jesus Christ. Just as the hymn writer boasts, nothing in myself I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we don't have to burden ourselves with the worry of saying the right things, doing too much, doing too little, dressing the right way, or whatever it is, Lord God, in order to warrant your mercy and your grace, because grace is unwarranted favor. It's unearned favor. It's what you pour out upon us through Jesus Christ and the blood of his cross as we respond to him favorably by faith. Thank you that you made it accessible to us. Because if you were searching for perfection, Lord, none of us would stand. But thank you for forgiveness in Jesus. We bow before him now. We bow our heads and our hearts and our souls. And I, and I repeat what Henry said earlier. If there's a person in this place that has never understood the sufficiency of Christ's forgiveness through the cross and through his resurrection, that, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would quicken them now to understand it and that they would just cry out to you in their hearts and become circumcised of heart, that they would surrender to you and you alone and watch the marvelous joy that you bring both in heaven and on earth. For you are Lord and Savior. It's in your precious name, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.